Welcome to episode 32 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg. Joining me, as always, is my dear friend, Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Hey, Ben. How you doing? Yeah, I'm all right. It's a bit late while we're recording this. I'm it's, a bit sleepy, but we'll, we'll get it done. Miami's a city that thrives on its nightlife. And it does. At NCR, really try to do the same in our recording times, I think. We're sort of method sure. podcasters in that sense. Defo method. Want to be, because neither you or I are in Miami. No. For the tournament so we're kind of following from afar but our hearts and our souls are there ish and so ish yeah, we will we will we will suffer the weird late midnight oil type burning that the miami writers i would assume are burning as well but maybe not i don't know maybe everybody's chilling out and going to ultra i don't know maybe maybe no judgment maybe. i'm just saying we're not here to judge on this episode, we're going to talk about Miami, obviously, and what's been going on at that tournament. We're also going to talk about Sloane Stevens, who lost Monday, and what's been going on with her since Australia, and what the future has in hold for her. And then we're going to take some questions, and then we're going to have an interview with Freddie Nielsen, who is the reigning Wimbledon men's doubles champ. That was an interview we did out in New Wells, which I think you all will enjoy. So Freddie's ready, great. Yeah. Ready, ready to go, Courtney? I am all set. Always ready. Let's do it. Let's start with Miami, obviously. We are recording this early Tuesday. What are your thoughts on the tournament thus far, Courtney? I think that it's it's hard for me to get a gauge. Okay, on the whole, I think it's been a dud. Yeah. I don't think that there's been anything that's happened so far that's been particularly surprising. Even Del Potro losing in the opening round was kind of like, almost kind of one of those never in doubt kind of moments just because of how well he played at Indian Wells and the players have always talked about how difficult it is to do the double and all these sorts of things so I wasn't a complete shock so and he was exhausted and hurt and he was exhausted and hurt and we already saw that he was exhausted and hurt in Indian Wells so to think that he would make a deep run in in Miami was, was probably a bit a bit ambitious but yeah for the most part it's been a bit of a dud I can't now personally and I don't know if you feel the same way Ben like I can't figure out whether or not I feel this way about the tournament because I'm coming off of being in Indian Wells for two weeks and being around live tennis in the sun, not even having to worry about what matches were covered and not covered because I could obviously watch any match I wanted. And, you know, and then also obviously press conferences and doing interviews and one on ones, being able to get that sort of access and then coming off that to now we're really being beholden to TV coverage rights, online streaming rights, and just what all the other journalists are doing on site in Miami, it's kind of left me a bit underwhelmed on the whole. Yeah, no, I I, I, suppose. I, I get that. I think I sort of agree. This was always going to be sort of a letdown tournament for us personally because it was coming between where we were at Indian Wells and us going to Charleston right. after this. So, so it wasn't going to be a big peak for us. But I still don't think the tournament has been um, that climactic for anybody just because of the results and the the players who aren't there and the players who have pulled out. I mean, we knew that Roger and Rafa were going to be out from the beginning, but then Azarenka is out. And I think the Azarenka-Serena dynamic was something, or having them at opposite ends of the draw, was something the tournament really could have used um, to stay, you know, even and keep it intriguing. Because that's the, the rivalry right now on the women's side, I think it's fair to say, at least yep. at the top. 
Agreed. And then, yeah, and then having Venus pulled out didn't help. Yeah, it's just been just been sort of a letdown so far. Yeah, and uh, you know, and it's it's just all, generally it's it's just a bit unfortunate because it's obviously I mean I just it really wasn't that long ago that Miami was really the preeminent tournament between the two between itself and and Indian Wells, and it's just really just the last two years I feel like that Indian Wells has kind of leapfrogged. Miami and obviously the tournament, as you said, has taken a huge hit with the number of, of pullouts and withdrawals and, and players who are skipping. There just hasn't been much to really breathe life into the tournament. I feel like the crowds have been flat. They have sometimes, yeah. Yeah, I mean, sometimes, down. not all the time, but generally. Attendance has been down, which I think is interesting. I got an attendance email from the tournament about attendance figures and all of them were short of, they never set any records for any session for attendance this year. Which is very rare. Which is very rare for tournaments. Tournaments are almost always breaking attendance records. This These people weren't coming close. They were falling short by like three, four thousand on some sessions, which is huge. And that's obviously a lot to do with Roger and Rafa and maybe Roddick even to a lesser extent and the sure. lack of a big American. Yeah, it's been it's been rough. It's been tough. And I think that a lot, the other uh, slight wrinkle with respect to Miami is that, you know, the secret about Indian Wells has kind of gotten out within the press, within media, that, that it's not just not only is it like a great tournament timing wise to go to because for both domestic and international media, because it's it's the first one, you can get a lot of uh, material, the access is quite good. And then also the city of Indian Wells and the tournament is just a, a nice vacation spot to mm-hmm. the extent that you can combine the two. And so, I mean, there's just not a lot of national or at least all the prominent, generally speaking, all the prominent names that that I'm kind of used to being at all the Masters or all the premier mandatory tournaments are not really in Indian Wells or not really in Miami this week. Yeah, a lot of people picked Indian Wells. Yeah, so so coverage-wise, it, it, it just feels a bit lesser. I mean, it's a great opportunity for everybody that's there because they get to own the coverage and really be the only people that the rest of us can rely upon, which is a great opportunity. I think you, you've you kind of experienced being in that role, Ben. I've experienced it as well, like before, like, you know, like when you were, I don't know, the, the sole blogger at the Azarenka-Ivanovich match. Right, sure, yeah, way back in Cincy, like 20 Right, yeah. and I was one of the few people who was, like, on-site watching Ivanovich Kleisters, like, a few years ago, and, and it really, really does matter. But it, it, but on the whole, it does kind of affect things when the people that you're just kind of used to being to reporting about tennis aren't there. So it just kind of takes away from the the prestige of the tournament a little bit. Yeah, so it's been been a little bit flat so far. But I think there's a bunch of big names. We could get some good matches still to come, maybe on the women's side, especially. I think the draw has some possible intrigue. Serena stayed in today with a dramatic win over. Dominika Chibokova, which was uh, something. And then, uh, what, well, what did you make of that match? Let's just start with that one. What did you make of Serena being down 6-2-4-1 to Domi and then just rolling? I kind of shrug at it a little bit. I mean, I think the only the only question I really have is, like, why was Serena so slow out of the gate? Yeah, like, really that was slow. It took her a really long bad. time. bad. Yeah, it took her a really long time to get to get um, to get her head into the match. And so that was a bit disconcerting. Especially given the amount of intensity that she showed in her opening round match against Panetta, mm-hmm. where we didn't see it, but I, based on the tweets and people on the grounds writing about it, like it sounded like she was like demonstrably like intense in the match, like fist pumps and come ons. And so for her to just be like so flat 
you know, against Chibokova, a player who she knows is dangerous, who she knows is can zone is pretty disappointing. But, you know, I thought this was a better showing from from Domi this year than it was last year against uh, Azarenka. I felt like last year there was a bit more of nerves that came into it. This year I just really felt like the story was really Serena. You know, in the first set, she hit two winners, so like something like 17 on four stairs. Yeah, Serena hit two winners in a set. I've never seen that. That's ridiculous. I mean, she normally has more than two winners by the end of a game. Yeah. You know, by the first game, you know? And obviously, winners include aces, and she wasn't cracking aces against Sebolkova. That's a problem. She was was spinning balls in it, like 90 miles an hour. You know, second set, she finally picked it up, and and she really got her teeth into the match and and started really going after Sebolkova's serve. I don't think—I think Sebolkova maybe held once after 4-1. Mm-hmm. And that was it, maybe twice. But it, but she wasn't holding much after that. Whereas before that, like Serena hadn't even seen like a break point since the first game or something like that. But yeah, so you know, it was Serena. It's hard to gauge. It's hard to know. I, I'm always a little bit. I don't know how you feel about this, but I'm always actually a bit wary of Serena when she's a number one. Yeah, I feel like there's less of a, I don't know, less focus there sometimes. Yeah, she, like she's not chasing something. There's nothing tangible that she's really gunning for a chip on her shoulder about you know, right like you're the one. best like yeah. you can't have a chip on your shoulder like you're the best on every single metric right now that's a good point so i don't know you know she's got a tough tough quarterfinal against lee Na. she could play Radvanska in the semifinals so and then she'd go up to against probably sharapova unless something goes horribly wrong for her could be jj but, <laughs> right so sharapova <laughs> so but yeah, I mean, it's a tough draw for Serena. She's got to bring her A game. But, you know, I think you and I both kind of believe that Serena is at her most vulnerable in the early rounds. And once she hits the quarter, she's usually pretty good. So right. This match know, against Lina still... will be tough, for sure. Yeah. Um, Lina seems to be playing pretty well. She did a nice uh, interview with Pete Bodo, which I know both mm-hmm. of us liked. Pete Bodo is one of the people who was there um, from a more sort of mainstream outlet this week. Thank you. Thankfully. So that was good, and she has been playing well after a long layoff, first tournament since Australia. And yeah, so that'll be interesting. Talked about the men briefly. I was asked by somebody if I thought the absences of Federer and Nadal were going to make it a more open tournament that more people could win now. And I was like, no, it pretty much just shrinks the possible winners to two. Mm-hmm. Djokovic and Murray, and I see no reason to change that opinion so far do you i i would agree i wrote a thing on sports illustrated last week that was kind of basically the same thing that this is basically arguing that looking at the miami draw this week is basically kind of a look to the future of yeah. what this tour could look like when both rafa and roger are no longer on the tour and it's it's kind of a sad state on the whole i mean obviously if djokovic and, and murray continue to do what they do they could do some some great and amazing things over the course of the next two year, next few years. But, you know, in terms of competition, I feel like competition will, will take a hit, like pure sports competition. And then that's, that's disappointing. So Burdick, for all we talk about him as being kind of this soddling 2.0 guy who struts around and kind of believes that he can beat anybody. Yeah, I mean, he believes he can beat Roger. Right. <laughs> I don't know if she believes he can beat anybody else. That's true. So he has matchup, huge matchup issues with both Novak and Andy. Del Poe's out, who we know can beat both Novak and Andy because he did it last week. He's already out of the tournament. Sanga, I just don't believe he can do it. No on Ferrer. Uh, so who's going to do it? No one. Nobody. Want so it's Novak to, I mean, I would, I mean, that was where my money would be is that it would be for Novak and Andy to make the finals. And then it's kind of from there. I give Novak a bit of the edge, but if if Murray were to win, it would not shock me. No, not at all. 
That's so. basically what it is. And I don't know if we ever had a time like this completely in the Federer-Nadal rivalry. Because Nadal was always pretty suspect on hard courts for most of that rivalry and could lose to a lot of people. Um, so he was never as much of a lock to the final as Murray and Djokovic are now. And then on clay courts, I guess both of them were pretty strong. But Federer maybe could lose to somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, but even though he really didn't that much. I mean, almost all of Federer's lost. He just lost to Nadal over and over and over again. Right, because it was kind of the pre-Novak gluten-free days. Right. Like, it was before Novak and Andy had become, like, their own, had really grown into themselves. Right, like, 06, 07, basically. Right. People, people might like the finals, and they might like having these rivalries um, building at the top, but the way, the path there, I mean, pretty, pretty routine for the most part. Right, I think that we've talked about that in, in podcasts, maybe, like, early last year, about how, you know, the women's tour, at least back in the day, now, now there's a significantly you know, stable tour on both ends, on both the ATP and WTA side. But, you know, before the last couple of years, I mean, the WTA was super exciting in the early rounds mm-hmm. and kind of flat over the week, the fi- semifinal and final weekend. Right. Whereas the ATP was super boring through the first, like, five days and really, really great the semifinals and finals. And now it's like both of them are kind of flat <laughs> through the first, like, through until the finals. Flatter, not the yeah. finals, but semifinals, you know, and yeah, is that good or bad for the game? I, I I genuinely, I have no idea. I know that it's probably on the whole personally disappointing because as one who has to cover it on a daily basis, like it'd be nice if something happened in the early rounds that was like notable and interesting. But I don't know. On the whole, maybe it's better that the tours are moving this way. It's for you to judge. <laughs> I, I don't, I'm not going to judge here. I mean, I'll judge elsewhere, but I'm not going to judge here. Pretty much. Dash Maria, Maria Sharapova. <laughs> Hashtag Sharapova. <laughs> Hashtag Sugar Mama Sharapova. <laughs> so Sloane Stevens, one of the bigger stories of the tournament so far, I think. She's been getting a lot of attention since Australia. Uh, she lost a late night match in Indian Wells in her first match, so it wasn't really time to do too much talking to her or anything there. But in Indian Wells, she's I'm oh, sorry, but in Miami, she's been around a little bit more. Uh, she got a walkover from Venus Williams. It was a very highly anticipated match. And then she was playing Radvanska today on grandstand, won the first set 6-4, was playing great, and then won two more games the whole match and lost 4-6, uh, 6-2, 6-0, and really seemed to be pulling the ripcord very, very hard during points of that match. Courtney, what did you make of, of Sloan's Miami and basically Sloan's uh, year so far? Yeah, I mean, I think that her Miami, it was it was lucky that, that she got to, you know, the fourth round. I think that whether or not it was Venus or somebody else in the in the third round, I think, you know, because she, she struggled in her opening match against uh, Gavortseva. Very much so. Um, she needed three sets to get past her. And got bageled once. Yeah, exactly. Got bageled in the first set. So it was, I think that she was lucky to get to, against Redvanska, but I think that that match in general was just kind of a microcosm of her year, which is that she came out playing really well, positive, really overwhelmed Redvanska with her power. You know, I think that Sloan offers that u- really unique matchup within the WTA of being a player that has, she has power, she can hit for power, mm-hmm. but she also has the movement yeah. to be able to defend against, you know, the hitters. So she can defend against the hitters, but she can out hit the grinders. So she's a tough matchup if she's playing well. So she came out and played really, really well against a relatively flat Radvanska. And then at 3-2 in the second set, or sorry, 2-3 in the second set with her serving, she got to like 40-15 and lost that lead and ended up not 
holding her serve, uh, Radvanska broke. And from there, it was just like she was done. She was going for winners when she had no business doing so. Her footwork completely failed. She tried guiding balls in and missing badly. I mean, and her body language is horrible. Really bad. Really, really bad. So it's tough. It's a tough situation for her to be in because, you know, she's what, 16 in the world? Mm-hmm. Very recently a top 20 player. It's only been like three months since she's been in the top 20. Um, two months, really. And yet she loses in three sets to the number four player in the world. And we look at her and we judge her. And we think of it as a negative result. Yeah. As opposed to saying, remembering, well, she's not actually supposed to beat the number four player in the world. But it's about her performance, right, Ben? Yeah, no, I mean, that's the thing. Like, on paper, you said, oh, Sloan loses in three to Radvanska, defending champion. Be like, oh, that's a great effort. But just the way it unfolded and the way she played the last two sets were really disappointing. And the way that she just sort of, you know, looked really, really lost, was looking over at her box constantly once the second set started. Not before that, really. But once that started, she just looked sort of really lost and just sort of, I don't know, helpless out there. And, like, she didn't want to stay in the match completely. Uh, so that was tough to watch, but I think it's also important to sort of, you know, check what her expectations were for Sloan, be more fair to her, because like you pointed out, where was she this time last year, Courtney? Last time this year, she was working, she was playing qualies in Miami. Yeah, qualies. Right. One year ago. So for her to go from that to a 16 seed is a huge, huge jump in expectations and attention on her. And... And very sudden. Yeah, very, very sudden. You know, this hasn't been a really a gradual climb. The fact that she's in a t- in the top 20 is the result of a rather miraculous, in many ways, semifinal run at the Australian Open, mm-hmm. where, you know, the Red Sea parted. I mean, not to take anything away from her. I mean, she's I ha- I'm big on Sloan. I think she's a tremendous talent. But, like, she didn't face a player, I think, ranked inside the top 40 until the quarters. Right. She got a pretty easy draw to that point. She played, um, I want to say, like, Halep and Mladenovic. And, and then, then Robson. And then Robson. And then jo- Jovanovski. Yeah, Jovanovski in a fourth round of a slam. Right. That's an incredible draw right there. Right. That's and then an she incredible played, draw. And then, then she was down a set and a break to Serena, and Serena got hurt. Yep. And that's what it was. And obviously Sloan deserves a lot of credit for coming through that match against Serena, because a lot of players wouldn't have. But, you know, there has to be something of a, uh, not an asterisk, but a remember what happened in that Australia run. Don't right. think that she's suddenly a world beater. Context, exactly. Context is all. You know, I mean, even against uh, Azarenka, if Vika doesn't get nervous and have her panic attack in the second set, I mean, Sloan probably loses like 6-1, 6-2. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's about where that match was going. So, you know, the fact that all of a sudden we think that like, and I think that obviously the circumstances surrounding that semifinal, like Vika gate, MTO gate, whatever, mm-hmm. like make people, like people forget what the scoreline of that match should have been. Right. That it was one-way traffic to Azarenka. There you go. So, I mean, it's it's a tough situation for her. Like, I definitely understand kind of where she is mentally, especially given her age. I mean, she's just turned 20. She's very young. Yeah. And she's defensive. And she's never, you know, a year ago, Sloane Stevens didn't, ha- didn't get hauled into press after first or second round losses. Definitely not. To explain herself. Like, she, a year ago, she was in that perfect, like, honeymoon phase of, like, no one expects you to win. So if you win, it's awesome like ticker tape parade but no one will ever give you shit if you lose you know and now it's like the opposite there are expectations and those expectations may be unfair and maybe aren't connected to reality but i don't know it reminds me a lot of melanie udan yeah in a lot of ways you know like in the way that she herself is telling the press to you know or the public i guess 
in the mm-hmm. larger picture, just to sort of, you know, slow the roll on the hype machine. Right. Right. Because it's so sudden. Yeah. You know, and I think that for Sloan, it's, it's just hard. You know, she's she's dealing with all those things. She's still young. You know, she's basically being pulled into press and told like, hey, you've lost like five of your last seven matches. Like, what's wrong with you? And from her perspective, because the Australian Open is a two week thing. Mm-hmm. But maybe if you put yourself in Sloan's shoes, she's like, well, in the grand scheme of things, I'm doing kind of what I've always done. Right. Which is like make like third or fourth rounds if I'm lucky, you know, and the Australian Open was the blip. Yeah. It's the anomaly, not the not the the expectation. So, yeah, it's it's a, it's a difficult time for her. I mean, I think that you can see it wear on her quite a bit, but and, hope, and hopefully she recovers from because it's not going to go away anytime soon. Right. It's the time machine. So it's definitely going to last at least for the rest of 2013, regardless of what her results are. Right. But I think that the clay season will be really good for Sloan because since the Australian Open, the four tournaments that she's played have all been premier tournaments. Yeah. She played Doha, Dubai, Indian Wells, and Miami. Biggest tournaments with the biggest fields, with the top fields, elite, whatever. Like, horrible for your confidence if you're losing first, second round in right. every single one of those tournaments. Now when she goes to clay, if she manages the same turn- the same schedule as she did last year, which is doubtful, but it's possible. Last year – hold on because I, ha- I just wrote this down because I wrote a thing on her. So you go this. into the notes. I know. I have a notebook, you guys. I have a notebook. Um, so last year, her clay schedule was Charleston, Barcelona, Estoril, Madrid, Rome, Strasbourg, and the French Open. That's a lot of tournaments. That's a lot of clay tournaments. So if she holds to that or even plays at least like five of those, it's a pretty solid clay season. She'll play against fields, especially if she plays like a tournament like Estoril, Strasbourg, maybe not Charleston because Charleston's pretty strong this year. but. Yeah. If she plays at least those two, it'll be a weaker field. And if she can just string together, like, three good wins, I think Sloan's back yeah. solid. Like, not, like, make a semifinal back, but, like, solid. At least playing solid tennis to where, like, it's not painful to watch her because you know that she's, like, so paralyzed by fear. Right, agreed. Yeah, because that, that was not fun today against Radwanska. It was not. What is fun, though, is your questions, as always, dear listeners. So we're going to take a few of those now. You ready for some questions, Courtney? I'm always ready for questions. I have thoughts. You have thoughts? You have answers, have really, is what it is. I don't really have answers. I have opinions. Okay, that's good enough. That'll do. And if there are answers to you, bless you, we're friends. If they're not, what do you know? So this first question <laughs> we have comes from uh, Tony. It's TJC05. Uh, and he... Basically, it's asking us about the lack of early round coverage on TV, um, especially WTA matches, which has been discussed a lot. Um, can we speak to this issue? I know there's the issue with TV rights, uh, wondering if red tape is getting in the way of a live tennis on TV. He finds it odd that number one Serena had zero cameras uh, for a U.S. match. So, Courtney, let's talk a little bit about the TV situations at Miami, and I guess Indian Wells also. Sure. What should people make of it, and what should people know about why... They can't watch, for example, Serena Williams in her first match in the U.S. as number one, which would seem like a big deal. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously it's disappointing. And I think that any but any, you know, hardcore tennis fan, as I know, monitored my Twitter feed over the, the, the first few rounds of Indian Wells and Miami were very disappointed, angry, shocked that that the early rounds of the tournament were, were not uh, either broadcast on television on something like Tennis Channel or streamed mm-hmm. on Tennis TV. 
both of those channels have TV on it. You would think that they would be able to negotiate those rights. Now, I mean, there are contractual, my understanding from conversations, I haven't had these conversations recently, so I'd have to like update them, but, um, and I will try to do that over the course of the next few months and come back here and provide updated information. But from a year ago, within the past year, I remember having a conversation with somebody who said that it's because I hear the, the biggest complaint that I hear is that Ben, you and I have been in the media room mm-hmm. and we know that there are feeds. There are cameras that are live on these outer courts. Security single cameras, camera, yeah. Basically a security camera type feed, right, mm-hmm. of of all these courts. So people, a lot of people will say, like, why can't you they just put up that? We'd be happy with that. Just a security camera, camera feed that we can watch. And while I don't disagree that, like, fans would be totally down with that, I mean, something is better than nothing, but apparently there are contractual provisions between the tour and I believe the tournament that don't allow that, right. that and the contractual provisions require that there be at least like three cameras and it, th- that the match be produced in the way that we're used to seeing a match produced. Right. Cause it would look, it would look bad for tennis on some level if that was, right. you know, cause those feeds do not look great. And it would be bad for arguably for the tour, whether it be WTA or ATP to throw up this free stream that you don't charge for right. and you don't get any money from um, and then go to the negotiating table with television or online distributors and th- them tell you, like, but you give this crap away. Yeah. No, but I'm, sh- I'm sure it's in their contract it's for the TV deals. Like, you can't give away non-televised matches. Right. Like, and that's, how ca- and that's, yeah, and that's exactly. the thing with the fans. I think that they have to understand is that there's no... Um, unless they're... Unless, they're charging for it, and unless fans are willing to pay like ten dollars to see the streaming of the first few days of a tournament, there's no incentive for the tournaments to do it because it is expensive setting up streaming. And yeah, if there's no money for it, I don't think that the tournaments would do it. And right. uh, why would you do, why would you devote right. resources to that? Right, and if as you're much not as getting any money from it, and as much as fans complain, I'm not sure how many of them would each be like, yeah, I'll shell out ten dollars to see Serena play Panetta. Well, yeah, I mean, this comes back to I think um, a conversation you and I had on this podcast like maybe a year ago almost Mm -hmm. where we were talking about like something like tennis tv and tennis channel both of them like tennis tv you have to pay for right now how many tennis fans and i'm asking this honestly how many tennis fans who like watch tons of tennis online actually pay for tennis tv and i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna go and say that like like especially like the people that I follow and that follow me and like whatever and who like absolutely love tennis and know more about it than I do, I'm gonna go ahead and venture to guess that like they probably don't pay for it. No, they find their free and streams. that's and that's fine. Like I'm not judging that, but I'm but like take that that like business decision that you've made or that economic decision that you've made and extrapolate it. There is not a lot of money in this sport for all of this talk of like all this prize money and. Like, these players making a shit ton of money. It's great for them, obviously, because this sport does not exist without them. Right. But outside of that, there is very little money in this sport. Mm-hmm. And and Tennis Channel is struggling financially. If they don't win that lawsuit against Comcast, they're, they're in big trouble. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's a reason why there are kind of ridiculously janky commercials on Tennis Channel. Because that's all they can get. A lot of times, yeah. You know, if they could get you know, a fancy Rolex commercial, they would, but they can't. So yeah, you're going to get P90X and like as seen on TV type commercials. Like this is just, 
this is the situation and this is the landscape. And, you know, and I think that I fall into this trap sometimes where I kind of believe, especially because Twitter is my like main contact to tennis fans that are not my friends Mm -hmm. that I kind of become convinced that it is what is actually the the pulse of tennis America. It's an echo chamber on there. And it's not. Yeah, it's an echo chamber. You have five people saying over and over again, why is there no stream? Why is there no stream? And what they really want is free streaming. You have to realize there's no incentive whatsoever for the tournament to listen to them. Right. And I think there should be some flexibility available for these for these deals, however, because there are situations like what happened last year in Miami when, first of all, you had Fernando Gonzalez playing his last career match before the camera switched on. And, like, yep. all of Chile was there, like, live, refreshing live scores frantically. And he was, like, the number one trending topic in Chile and around the world because of just Chile. And the match wasn't even televised. And that was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And then you had Venus and Kvitova who drew against each other very, very early in that tournament, second round. And Kvitova was the defending Wimbledon champion, and Venus, obviously, is Venus, has won seven Grand Slams. So there should be some flexibility maybe where the Tennis Channel can scramble a crew or something and get those matches up. But it's, in, yeah, in but general, the incentive just isn't there for that. Right. I mean, even when you think about that, like Tennis Channel could scramble a crew or Tennis TV could scramble, scramble a crew. Like what you're talking about is scrambling a crew of probably, I would say, like 12 to 15 people. Mm-hmm. I would say, right? Like that yeah. seems like a, a, a good guess. Yeah. Put them on planes, get all the equipment there earlier than you expected. Mm-hmm. Because the draw happens on a Tuesday and maybe these matches are going on on a Thursday, maybe sometimes a Wednesday. Yeah. And you didn't think that you needed to get your equipment there until Saturday, or or I guess Friday, like. No, I, to- I totally get I totally get that. But back. you know what I mean. I'm not, I'm not saying this to you, but I'm just saying that like in general, I think that like it's important to like step back and think about the logistics of what we're asking for, quote unquote, tennis to provide us. Right. And it's frustrating. I mean, I've you know this week or last week in particular, like I felt like I understood how spoiled I was being in Indian Wells and not really paying attention to the streaming or television issues because I was right there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then now being stuck in this situation where I'm like, well, I really would like to write about Ivanovich losing to Arani today, but I can't because I didn't see it and it wasn't streamed and I don't really have an answer to as to why, you know, mm-hmm. but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's complicated. I just think that, that generally speaking, there's just not, I think people overestimate the amount of money that the tours have, that the tournaments have. Right. And they might overestimate demand for it, too. That's the big thing. I think people really overestimate the demand. If demand were there, the money would be there. Exactly. Because advertisers would respond to that. Yeah. But there really isn't. And this is, you know, it's a it's a it's a tough, you know, yin yang thing because you're like, well, you can't generate demand unless it's on TV. Right. But I can't get it on TV if there's no demand. So let's talk. Let's talk briefly about the other part of that question, which I don't think we really touched on. It's why it's been especially the problem for the WTA matches at these tournaments. Sure. What are your thoughts? Basically, I think the way it works is that these tournaments, and I hadn't really been aware of this, but the tournaments are covered by the World Feed system, mm-hmm. which is a contract the ATP has. Yes. Um, That's why you hear the Robbie Koenigs and the Jason Goodalls. Those are all World TV guys. World Feed guys, right. Yeah. So them producing WTA matches at these tournaments is sort of auxiliary. And by they, I mean like the producers, the cameramen. Etc. Right. Not the commentators. Obviously, the different commentators. It's like Tennis Channel, Lindsay Davenport, whoever doing these matches. So that they do it sort of at their whim, like how many WTA matches they're going to do in a given day. And at Indian Wells, they're like, yeah, we'll get like three WTA matches a day they can cover. And they're usually during the day, usually not like the second night session or anything. Mm-hmm. So Sloan wasn't televised in Indian Wells. A bunch weren't. I mean, it would be like basically like two on stadium and one on the second stadium. And that was it. 
and it's just it's the WTA basically does not have a very good TV deal right now. They don't have right. their own TV deal at these tournaments that are combined, and they wind up really getting pushed to the sides, and it's it's definitely not a good setup for them. People who want to promote their sport equally, they're not on equal footing right now. Right, and and I think you know obviously. I don't think that the WTA is like sitting there like being like, oh, no big deal. It's okay. Like, I think that they obviously want to get better TV deals. I think that my sense from a lot of the WTA's moves over the last few years, really investing in online with like that contract with Perform to produce matches Mm -hmm. um, and also kind of letting the Eurosport deal die, not die, but obviously they didn't... um, they didn't want to resign with that. Like I think that WTA really thinks that online is is the future, which I don't necessarily agree with. I don't either. Um, I think that, and and I asked Stacey Alistair in Istanbul about it, and the answer was not particularly illuminating or helpful. But they're just kind of saying like, if you're going to focus on online and not focus on television, isn't that a problem? Because when people click channels and they see something that might be mildly interesting, they'll, like, stick around. Whereas, like, with internet, you have to go. Like, you have to, like, sit down at your computer and be like, I'm going to watch tennis. Like, it's not an accidental thing. You don't get, quote-unquote, foot traffic. No, not at all. It's like being a destination, you know, restaurant in the middle of nowhere or something. Right. That's great if you're awesome. But if you're not awesome, like, and that's not to say that WTA is not awesome, but it's not picking up, like, random fans. Accidental viewers. People aren't surfing through channels and finding tennis TV. It's like why I, I why I watch curling. Like yeah. I'm down with curling because like randomly I'll stumble upon it and I'll like watch it or like poker. Like you know poker is like a big example. By the way, I'm currently reading a book about curling and it is the most Canadian thing I've ever read and it's awesome. It's called <laughs> so Open House by Scott Russell and it's just like oh mom and dad would put on their sweaters and grab their brooms and say oh we're going to the rink son and I'd be like oh okay and I knew they were going to the wonderful Canadian land of curling and it's just it's the best. You sound like you're from North Dakota. That's close. Border state, like, anyway. You sound like an extra from Fargo. Mm-hmm, that was the idea. Okay. So, have you curled? I have not curled. I've seen. I've never curling. curled either. I've seen it. I've just like, never. I feel curled like you would myself. like it because really, what curling is, people standing around drinking. No, but here's the thing. Like, I would dig curling just because I want to have like the cool, awesome, like slick shoe, and then the traction shoe, mm-hmm. and like sweep i would be the sweeper i would not be the aimer guy yeah. the shooter i don't see you as an aimer guy either i'm not an aimer i'm, I'm really i'm all about facilitating things mm-hmm. i'm all about helping make things happen i'm all about me helping other people have their dreams come true sounds about right that's the corny yeah. i know so i'm that's all i'm saying but yes as it comes back to like wta i will say this a lot of times like people like really like blast the tournaments for the crappy coverage mm-hmm and it's not their fault it's not necessarily the tournament's fault like it's just as much the wta's fault or the atp's fault and so to the extent that you are directing your complaints direct, direct them, them equally so that they know i mean i think that it's helpful or the networks, for the w- networks. if you want to write a tennis channel that's probably yeah fine a tennis channel like whatever but i think that it's it's definitely they might not like it obviously because it's critique but i think that on the whole it's probably better for like the tours to be able to say like look people care like, people want this, and so let us try and provide this to them. So in whatever shape, whatever form that is, whether it's television or online. So, like, I always joke, you know, write your local congressman, and by congressman I mean tour, and try and make it happen. Our next and last question for this episode comes from Tyler Green, 
he says on our Facebook, what do you think of the way Justin Gimelstab has become impossible to avoid, no matter how much every sane man, woman, and child, especially the one in, ones in bikinis, ahem, might like to? Tennis Channel makes us listen to the guy. Is there any broadcaster less liked by fans? He runs an event in L.A., and he sits on, on ATP board as a player rep. Huge conflicts there. Obvs. But seriously, there's too much Gimelstab in tennis, right? Courtney? <laughs> Oh, this is a line, a minefield, Ben. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I'm happy to talk about it. Is there too much gimmel stop in tennis? Yeah, there is. Um, there's a I lot of gimmel stop in tennis. There's a lot of gimmel, and this isn't necessarily. First of all, like what I'm about to say is not like a referendum on him, which I can go to like personally, which I can go to later. Like my first part of the like my answer is just more. You can't. You cannot be on the player council and chumming up to players, and you then you cannot be commentating about those players and also being an organizer of an event and, and, and claiming that you want to bring like a, a, you know, ATP 500 or, or larger style event to the LA area. These are just not things that you should be allowed to do. You know, I think that we've talked on this podcast together. together simultaneously, like as one person, I think that we've talked many times on this podcast about the conflicts of interest in tennis. They are, they run deep, they run wide and they are problematic. They are not necessarily good for the sport. And I think that for for Justin, I think that, that he can be good in certain things, but I think that doing all of these things is, is problematic. And I think that nothing really illustrated that more than Tennis Channel's coverage during Indian Wells, where obviously he had, had helped organize the LA Tennis Challenge, which obviously had Djokovic and Sampras and Marty Fish and the Bryan brothers. They all participated. Um, it seemed like a that. very solid XO. Yeah, it, it sounded fine. There seemed there sounded like there were a few snafus mm-hmm. uh, logistically, but whatever. Cool. Lights LA go out. That happens in Miami too. Yeah, exactly. Lights go out. Happens. So that's fine. But then during the entire entirety of Indian Wells, because um, Tennis Channel was basically covering it similar to how they cover Grand Slams, where they the minute that a player loses, they try and go grab them and bring them onto the set and do like an interview and all these sorts of things. Player wins, yeah. Yeah, the player wins. There was just more talk about this LA tennis challenge. It was and lot. it made no sense. He was the thing he was, was done. He was at an ATP tournament talking about an promoting an EXO that already happened. Right. It was strange. It was strange and it was inappropriate and it was gauche, honestly, mm-hmm. because it was every single day and it was with every single player and it was him interviewing these players. And to add to the kind of the conflicts of interest or the problematic nature of his involvement, this is a guy who has said some extremely misogynistic and hateful things about former tennis play- former female tennis players and current female tennis players. And yet he's sitting there kind of like smiling as he interviews like a Maria Sharapova or, you know, a few other players where it's it's hard not to cringe a little bit and think that it's it's not appropriate and I would rather it be a Brett Haber or a Sam Gore or a Lindsay Davenport or a Renee Stubbs doing that interview than him but he clearly insists on doing it and there are reasons for that and I don't think that those reasons are necessarily for the better of tennis during the that's part of when you mention all those other names that's part of what it is I mean I respect Justin Gimmel Stubbs work ethic Oh, hardest working man he's, in tennis. He really I does genuinely work will say that. Incredibly hard. And he's yeah. constantly, constantly working in tournaments. A lot of it's very schmoozy and stuff, but he does he's working a lot. 
and he's very, you know, he gets a lot of stuff done. The players clearly seem, a lot of the male players seem to like him because he's an advocate for them. And he has, was, according to a lot of reports, you know, instrumental in sort of driving the negotiating that happened with the prize money at the Grand Slams. So all that part is fine. As his job as an ATP board player rep, I think that, you know, it's hard to knock what he's done there. But on the, yeah, on TV, it's just, it's, his tone is, is it's rough because... You mentioned all these other players um, who you thought were people, broadcasters, who you thought would be better for the interviews. And they had Mark Knowles doing commentary today right. in Miami. And it was just, like, very relaxed, very pleasant, very unassuming. And that's not usually what Justin brings to the booth. Justin, as usual, makes these grand declarative statements, like, Marty Fish has one of the best forehands in the game. And it's just we like, know he does. He's a top 50 player. Of course he has one of the best forehands in the game. And it's just this like, is not useful. No, and it's just like these grand like declarations, just like uncomfortable listening. It doesn't seem like Knowles is like somebody you could imagine. like. And I'd never heard Knowles broadcast before, I don't think. But he was just like somebody you can imagine kicking back with and like watching the match and like talking about it conversationally. Almost, almost how I was like talking at you in these like declarative points. And so as a broadcaster, he's just definitely not my favorite style of broadcaster. There are ones who I like more who sort of, you know, make you think more like Mary Carilla will ask a bunch of sort of like rhetorical questions in some ways and, you know, get, I don't know, more cerebral thing going. Right. With Gamble it's not like that. So I, I absolutely have no problem with him being an ATP board rep and doing that job well, like he seems to be doing. But all the other stuff that he's been allowed to entangle with, I think just gets messy. And I think that's not where his strengths lie is on the broadcasting side. I never, I haven't in his whole tenure behind the microphone, which has been pretty long at this point. It's been, he's been on air for like four or five years now. It really has. And I think that, I mean, I absolutely agree with you. I think that he is a tremendous player rep. I yeah. think that he does that job extremely well. I think that's really the value add that, you know, he brings to the table. And now that, you know, Brad Druitt is obviously sick and they're making, you know, the ATP is looking for a new chairman. I don't think obviously it'll be Justin. He's, he's much too kind of young and, and junior, but do I think that Justin Gimmelstab would one day run the ATP? Absolutely. Could to the happen. extent that he wants it, absolutely he will. But his connection with the, and, and how he uses his influence within Tennis Channel and within broadcasting, I just don't think that it's it's appropriate. And, you know, Tennis Channel has so many really great, in my opinion, they're they're full of talent. Yeah. There are people who are, are really good at analyzing matches, um, providing insight. You know, I think that Ashley Fisher, Fisher's quite good. I think Mark Knowles has been really great this week. Yeah. Obviously on the women's side, I think, you know, they have a, tr- a very strong stable in in Lindsay and, and Stubbsy and, and um, you know, Karina Tracy. And, and Tracy. It's, it's solid. But I just really don't think that they need Justin as much as he is kind of used on the ATP side and you know, when Justin is actually at his best in the booth, it's when he has zero connection with the players and he's just analyzing a match between devoid. The the yeah, lines, between, sort of. yeah, exactly. As you say, between the lines and he's actually quite good. And I think that Justin is a really, really good tactical mind, but I think he that knows, when he, it know, comes, he knows his tennis, he, really he knows his tennis. Absolutely. But he can't analyze or do color commentary on a match where he has to be concerned about what those players will think of him. Right. Because he's a player rep. Yeah. That's where the conflict of interest comes in. If Janko Tipsarovic goes out there and does something idiotic and stupid and looks like he's taking a false medical timeout and game gaming the system and being a dumbass on the court, Justin's not in a position to call him out on it. Although he's more likely to call him out if he's playing one of his American buddies. Correct. This is true. Or if he's playing or 
call out Feliciano Lopez if he wants to call out Feliciano Lopez. But, right. you know, that's not okay. That's not a position that you, that you should be allowed to be put in. It's just not necessary. That's what we're saying. It's just not necessary for Tennis Channel. They have so many other options. It's not necessary. So, you know, yes. Is there, you know, back getting back to the question, is there too much Justin Gimmelstab in tennis? Probably. And and I think that, that honestly, if I had my way, I'd walk him back from the broadcast side and really just, he seems to be crushing it as, as an ATP rep. Yes, yeah, seriously. And that seems to be the future of his career. So go pursue that because you're good at it. Very good at it. Agreed. To wrap up episode 32, we're going to bring you the last of the interviews for the podcast we did in Indian Wells. This is the first one with an ATP ear, and it's with none other than Freddie Nielsen, a.k.a. Frederick Nielsen, a.k.a. Frederick Lochte Nielsen. Did you know his middle name was Lochte, Courtney? Like, like Ryan? I only know this because you told me, Ben. Oh, yeah. So I'm full of Freddie facts, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I had talked to Freddie several times before um, at Hopman and Cincinnati and stuff like that, but I think it was your first time meeting him, Courtney. So what did, what did, what did you what did you make of of Freddie? Yeah, he was great. He was exactly what I kind of thought he'd be, which is just a really chilled out dude who's just kind of happy being a tennis player, who's not taking things so seriously, but obviously has enough pride in himself that he wants to you know do right by himself and, and play well and things. But um, but he was really fun to talk to. I really I thought it was a great. Uh, great interview and i you know ben was the one who had the idea to, to set it up and so it was good we probably give some bio info on him that we didn't cover the interview just because i'm not sure everyone knows who he is freddie nielsen is the grandson of kurt nielsen who was a danish wimbledon single back in like the 50s or so and then uh freddie had been a long time sort of challenger player who really hadn't been making much of a move on the pro tour he'd been stuck in like the 200 300s even of the rankings he suddenly got plucked from obscurity uh, last year at Hopman Cup when he's from Denmark and Caroline Wozniacki needed a partner to be on the Danish team, a guy. And so they found Freddie. Any guy. <laughs> any any Danish guy, basically. So they found Freddie and Freddie went there and did pretty well. He almost beat Marty Fish, actually. Marty was struggling, but still he almost beat him. And then he went on to qualify for the Australian Open and then he sort of faded away again. And then he got, he won a challenger and doubles with Johnny Mary, and the two of them then got a wild card into Wimbledon, and somehow managed to win the whole tournament. It was it was really like one of the really Cinderella esque way. It was super Cinderella esque. It was like really like the Wimbledon the movie, which is terrible. It really should never be spoken of. It was sort of like that, just with doubles. But awesome. Yeah, you think the movie's awesome? No, no, no. I'm saying that like Wimbledon the movie sucks. Good. Thank so you. if you could like instead just do a movie about Johnny and Freddie's run to the, the championship at Wimbledon last year, it would be a good movie. Right. Agreed. So then, so then Freddie and Johnny went on to qualify for the world tour finals in London and they played there, made the semis. You'll hear more about that, that stuff all here. And it just sort of really sort of changed the direction of his career hugely. He'd always wanted to be a singles guy and still does largely. And is still pursuing a singles career, even though he's ranked like outside the top 400 in singles and is a top 20 doubles guy, which almost nobody does. Everyone else is giving it up, but he's keeping the dream alive. So got some interesting thoughts and stuff. And to start him off, we thought we would uh, hear first from somebody who knows him way better than we do, better than most anybody else on tour. It's the only other Danish player on the pro circuit of the top levels. So here is Caroline Wozniacki telling you what you should expect from Freddie Nielsen. 
Well, don't believe anything he says. <laughs> well, we just, a lot of listeners probably not, might not know who he is. We thought, obviously, you know him very well. How would you introduce people to Freddie? Obviously, that was part of it. What, what, what would you tell people who are about to listen to Freddie Nielsen? Um, he's a really funny guy. Um, you know, I think if you follow him on Twitter, then you'll see that he has some fun comments, and uh, he always makes you laugh. So uh, I've known Freddie for, for a very long time, and... Uh, you know, I, we always joke that he, he always used to come 15 minutes late for practice with a croissant in his hand and a hot chocolate in the other. And then we were all already there on court and practicing and he would just be, okay, yeah, yeah, I'm taking my time. But he's actually changed a lot. And, uh, you know, now he's on time and I still give him a hard time about that. I'm like, what? Coming before to warm up? What's happened? Uh, but uh, we have, he's also a huge Liverpool fan. So uh, we've actually went to Anfield together and watched, oh, nice. uh, watched a game. Uh, I, don't, I think it was last year. And, uh, yeah, I mean, just fun to be around. Good karma. It's, it's great. Do you think people should take him with a grain of salt then? No, I mean, he, uh, with people he knows well, then he's uh, a big jokester. But uh, with people he doesn't know, I think uh, he's more serious. But uh, he's definitely a fun guy to hang around. Thanks, Caroline. Appreciate Thank it. You. Thank you, Caroline. And here it's Freddie and us to take us out. Thanks for listening, folks. Thanks, y'all. So we are here with Freddie Nielsen and beautiful Indian Wells. How are you doing, Freddie? I'm pretty good. It's, Thanks. You said this is your first time at this tournament. You've been on the tour for a long time. What is it like coming to a new place still? Well, now you say I've been on the tour. <laughs> I've been uh, on several tours, not, not that much on the big tour. So for me, this is, uh, this is a whole new experience, getting to play these tournaments. And it's... Uh, it goes without saying that it's uh, it's a pretty good experience for me. Can you give like some sort of insight into because you have been on the different levels and we were in a press conference with Golbis a couple of days ago where he was kind of you know ripping the challenger level in terms of the, like how players are treated, mm. uh, you know, and how the tournaments are run and things like that, and kind of wanted to see better organization and things like that. I mean, now that you've been you know all across the board on the different tours, like how can you kind of compare? I don't know. Now you're playing Masters and Slams to to kind of go into the smaller events. Well, in many ways you can't really, but uh, the way I see it, at the end of the day, t- tennis is the same. The court's the same size. You still play with tennis balls. You have this, the purpose of the game is still the same. So I'm, I'm, I think I'm a little more flexible in that sense. But organization-wise, there's no way of comparing it. It's impossible. Is it like uh, a transport issue, or is it just like kind everything? Of everything. everything. Just, I mean, yeah. the tournament I played before here was a ten thousand dollar tournament uh, future in mm-hmm. England. And you so won. I won. Congratulations. <laughs> so it was the best tournament ever. <laughs> <laughs> so it, that's pretty much from the lowest mm-hmm. range of tournaments to the highest in two weeks. So obviously the contrast is huge. Like there's small differences. Like I played the semi-final mm-hmm. and uh, we were three courts next to each other. On one court next to me was uh, was the other semi-final. Then I was playing and on the other court it was county week. <laughs> so there's like balls flying everywhere. and. It's just a lot of people in the in the center, and uh, when when I play my first round, I've, I was there in good time to practice. But the practice balls are the ones they use for college. There's no ball change, and oh my goodness. basically the, the sign on the ball you, you can't see what kind of ball right, it's it is. Been rubbed off. So all of a sudden, when the first round comes and you get new balls, it's it's a different world. So it's small things like that all the time. Yeah. And uh, here you. 
I mean, you get treated like... Uh, Every hit is off of a new ball. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's like, hey, what kind of balls? <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, in the practice courts all over the place. You have uh, great quality of practice courts everywhere. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a different world. It really is a different world. You were talking, um, a lot of players talk about how this is like one of the nicest tournaments where their things are best taken care of. Was there like a highlight for you of just all the stuff here in New Wells? You know, just like the views or the weather? Well, obviously the view is, uh, is big. Well, we had a horrendous flight in. Yeah, I, was, too. Uh, I did too, yeah. No, that was really... Uh, Where did you fly in from? From LA. Okay. Just yeah, a, that's a, a tiny one. And that was, a, that was probably the highlight, but for, for <laughs> not the right re reasons. Right. I mean, we were we couldn't even land. They tried oh, to land us, and, and the pilot said that was the worst turbulence he's ever experienced. So that was, that's that's, the, that's the most I sweated all week. <laughs> in, 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 so, not the earthquake uh, from this morning? No, I didn't really feel the earthquake. You didn't? Were you up, or were you... Uh, yeah, I was waiting to practice. Mm -hmm. I felt a little something, but if... It, nobody had told me it was an earthquake I would have noticed it yeah but other than that it's just being at a major event it's for me I'm a, I'm a tennis geek myself I love this you you're here with well this is the tennis world this is where every single uh, piece of attention is at at the moment this is all this is basically the world of tennis that's gathered here for 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 this tournament and to be part of that is it's pretty nice for me. I'm trying to just suck it all in and uh, make the most of it. When you talk about being a tennis geek, like if you're on when, when you were on the lower tours, did you follow the top of the game closely? Oh, of course. Yeah. How exactly I follow does that, all kinds how of How exactly does that work? I'm always curious about this because you know both the women and the men. You guys are all pretty aware of what's going on, even in the tournaments that you're not playing and whose rankings go up and things like that. You know, like an email blast, or you're no, going no, no. like you're reading ESPN. Like how does it? No, how do you track it? Yeah, that's kind of the stuff that we talk about. We all check results. It's pretty easy in these days with the internet to check results. And we talk about, did you see this guy did that? Or especially if uh, if one of the guys from our Like your ranks, yeah, does Does something. well at a higher tournament. We try, oh, wow, did you see this guy? And then we try to stay involved. Everybody, I think most of the players are generally interested in results and try to follow. Yeah. And I'm no different. And yeah, We talk a lot about tennis because we're... We're in tennis, I guess yeah. that's what people do, that's our interest okay. as well. At, when you went Wimbledon, the number of, I follow like a lot of players on Twitter, the number of like challenger circuit players who were tweeting at you and Johnny was incredible. It was like literally hundreds of people. <laughs> it was literally like, our boys done good! Like, <laughs> yeah. what, what, what was that like for you, like, the support from the people on the lower range to start with that part? That was amazing. That was one of the best part about the actual experience to feel that and the, the guys on the uh, on the tour that we normally play with feels like it's it's one of our guys and I'm really happy about that and I'm more than happy to share that experience and it does kind of feel like a representative yeah. of, of, of the lower rank tournaments and yeah it definitely made the uh, the experience even more special for us it goes without saying so when you're at a bigger tournament do you like hang out with the guys who are more challenger players when you can or is it more like the separate social world no up? no no it's not like that no, <laughs> thank God. no it's it's more i think it's more geographical okay i think a lot of people stay with the language barrier and stuff like that so no it, it's uh, it's not like that it's not yeah, <laughs> yeah. that would be something else that would be that would, yeah, maybe a little bit high school yeah, yeah, that yeah. Would, no, it's not like that. Well, your proficiency in English has to help that then in terms of, because, you know, a lot of, yeah, the players like the Spaniards kind of hang together, the Italians and things like that, mm. like, but you're able, I would think, to be able to kind of float through different... A little bit, to, yeah. yeah. I mean, I have to. I'm from the smallest country on the tour, <laughs> basically, so... Uh, it's you and Caroline. I, and me and Caroline. So I can't really get by with my Danish, yeah. so i got to improve on all the other languages to try and, uh, and keep up with the banter. Mm -hmm. But uh, for me, that's one of the biggest reasons that I play tennis is the, the interaction with the other players and human beings. I mean, tennis is a fantastic sport because it's such a world sport. You have players from every continent, you have young players, old players, you got coaches that are even older, and you have 
every religion in the world represented. So it's amazing, and I love that. So I, I, I really try to to make the most of it and get in touch with as many uh, players as possible because they all have uh, different qualities to to bring to life, and and I feel that I I can learn a lot in my life from them, and that's basically that's the biggest pull about the sport for me. How, right? how long did it take you to get to that point? If, if it wasn't immediate. In other words, like when you're young and you start out, and it can be a bit daunting. I would think oh, absolutely. to kind of be like you walk in and like you you're just hearing chatter and you don't oh, understand absolutely. what's going on. Especially when you're terrible. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> exactly. So it's not like and uh, I, I was never really one with a big uh, ego from Maybe. from beginning. So. Uh, not being a very good player either doesn't really. I, I'm not really walking into a place to he, he, here. Yeah, right. Here Chess I am. Out, you know, like bring it on. <laughs> so it was definitely difficult, but yeah, like I said, being the only Dane, I, I used to travel with a friend of mine for many years, and we got to know people, and then people get to know, and you, it's like networking. And luckily, I've been playing for many years now, so I've managed to build up a little bit of a network. And yeah, absolutely. so, so one it's, of the, it's great. One of the first big stages you were on was Hotman Cup mm. last year. Talking about Caroline as a partner there for you. What was that experience? going you know from this challenge it's like these internationally televised match representing Denmark against like the US beating like a country like the US for the first yeah. time what was all that like for you it was pretty scary to begin with because uh, in the fall before Hotman Cup I was playing such bad tennis that I was struggling to see myself win games against these guys mm -hmm. and it was very difficult for me to I don't mind playing these tournaments when I'm there on my own merits but here everybody knew that I was there because Caroline needed a partner, she right. can't play by herself and there wasn't anybody else than me, than right. me to choose from so that was strange, you know, if I play an event I want to, you know, if I play a Grand Slam and I play a main draw it's because I qualified right. and I was in the qualification because of my ranking here it felt like it's just I didn't belong there so that was pretty scary yeah, yeah. but then uh, by the end of the year uh, I, I managed to get a good team together, great coaches and I, I had some good people around me and we started working and uh, yeah, it, it, it came together quite well in Hopman Cup. Uh, I played some good tennis on a good stage compared to what I normally do so it, it gave me, uh, it, it really was a massive help for me in, in the way I approached my tennis to see that, that the way that we were working and the path we decided to, to, to go down for me was beneficial for me personally, even though I didn't win any matches, but uh, I can definitely say that if it hadn't been for that experience, there's no chance we we could have gone on and win Wimbledon, that's 100% sure. But after that, it was an amazing experience, of course. I, uh, the, the, the thing I always try to tell myself when I play tournaments like that, like the Hopman Cup or the Wimbledon or Indian Wells here, is just, I'm not going to let anything uh, get in the way of enjoying this experience, because especially a player like me, who's, uh, I mean, this could be the first and last time I, I play this tournament, right, right. so there's nothing that uh, that uh, talks for me to to be back here next year. So, I mean, this no matter how bad I play or whatnot, right. I'm trying to just you know, not let anything get in the way of, of making the most of the experience and then trying to to milk it really. Yeah, so that's that's what I'm in the, in the game for. You you more than most ATP guys or guys in the men's one of the men's tours have pretty close contact with a WTA player in Caroline because you're the only two from your country and I know you've worked with her some also what is it like being near you know someone who's like a top player on the opposite tour what are the differences between the worlds you, that you see when you see the two compared and I guess what her whole experience must be like well it's very different because uh, I don't uh, sometimes I forget her status in the world mm. because I've known her since she was you know, the size of her own racket. <laughs> so for me, she's still Caroline. And sometimes I forget how uh, how much pressure she's under, how famous she is, how, I mean, she's she's a big deal. 
and not only in Denmark, but, but sometimes when you're, I'm not in the middle of it, but I'm in the vicinity, so sometimes it's easy to forget how much hype and all the stuff she has to go through and how many fans she has. And uh, it's, it's uh, very interesting for me being, being a nobody to, uh, to experience that. And, and I think she, uh, she's quite impressive in the way she handles it because it's not easy. And she's been in this life since she was a, 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 a very young girl. And uh, she became number one in the world. And there were always a few things that that's the way it is with the world. You, you can't, nothing's good enough. Uh, right. You're number one, but you didn't have a grand slam. <laughs> and now it is budget. I mean, you're number 10, top 10 in the world. What's going wrong? You know, it's not, it's, it's, no matter how much success she's had, she's always had to face a lot of negativity mm -hmm. as well. And I think she's handling really well. And I'm, I'm happy to see her doing well and, and going through life being a small girl. And this was her ambition ever since she could play. And mm -hmm. we always knew in Denmark that it was going to be special. But I think she, uh, she outdid herself. And, and it's fun to see that project actually yeah. become something worldwide. And, and she's made a great career, and, and that's obviously a, a massive difference from what I'm used to. If you talk about the comparisons, I mean, also now with with my doubles partner Dimitrov, who's also mm -hmm. a fan favorite. You know, if if we practice and he leaves the court uh, 15 minutes from before me, I'm still in the locker room before him because he has to go right, through. Right. Stuff and <laughs> it's it's a different world, and it's tough for me to uh, to to really imagine what, what they must be going through but I think that we are pretty lucky with the the, the, the players we have in our sport that mm -hmm. they've all been such good representatives and I think we can be really proud of, yeah. of our players on the men's and women tour. Is there is there joy in the anonymity though? Like when you see Oh absolutely Yeah right like when you see like Caroline get mobbed or Dimitrov and you see the pressure that the expectation when they're just trying to play a tennis match and maybe you don't have that as much maybe more so after Wimbledon but you can kind of go through and just play tennis and focus yeah, on tennis. absolutely but there is a little bit now uh, it, it's it's a bit annoying of course yeah. uh, but at the same time I'm pretty comfortable about what I'm doing so I don't I, it doesn't bother me that much yeah. and, and that, that kind of anonymity is not too big but it's nice to just I really love the fact that I'm able to walk around watch the tennis on the outside courts I'm thinking sometimes these guys you know Roger could never do it mm -hmm. I mean what, what, how is he gonna go to court seven to sit in one match people are gonna go crazy and I, that kind of stuff I enjoy. I can go wherever I want to every restaurant. I can go in the crowds here. I can go watch any court. And that kind of anonymity yeah, is, yeah, is pretty absolutely. cool. <laughs> so so uh, let's go back to the Wimbledon thing, which then changed picture a little bit for you. What was that whole, you've had a you know, half a year now to look back on it. What do, what do you remember most about that whole experience? Yeah. And what do you make of it, seemed it, it now? It seemed overwhelming at the time. I just remember it like all of a sudden, you guys were like winning these matches, and everyone's like Johnny Murray and Freddie Nielsen, like you know, and, and obviously the Brit British being fervor. In, yeah, being with the British press had to make it all because they're like the, sort of the craziest about that kind of stuff. Yeah, but the, it wasn't actually too bad because Andy was doing so well himself, oh, so, so right. he took all the attention, mm -hmm. and he had the finals next day. It gave a little bit of a boost because uh, the last time a Brit won a Grand Slam, uh, won Wimbledon doubles or singles, it was the same year. Mm -hmm. So they thought, okay, we got one who won doubles <laughs> yeah. now, so. Right. Everything's ready for Andy. I mean, it was overwhelming, yeah, but we. I think what I remember most is, is other people's reactions. Mm. That's what made the most, imp uh, you know, because when you're in the bubble mm. of playing the tournament, you see the same people, you just, all right, you, I obviously uh, understood that there was a bit of a different attention, uh, and, and I, I thought it was only Denmark, yeah. because we, we snuck through the draw, we were playing on minor courts mm -hmm. all the way until the final, so it felt like, it felt like obviously we were doing something right, but it wasn't too hectic, no, it wasn't event. too too crazy, but then when we uh, when we won it, and, and all the reactions afterwards, getting back home, and receptions back home, and 
other people's reactions to people from my life. You know, I was happy, but I wasn't, you know, over the moon. I, I, I'm, you know, I, I never really react yeah. highly on bad losses or great wins. I try to stay. Obviously, I enjoyed the fact right. that we did well, but I think other people's reactions, my friends, family, and and just people in general, that's been the biggest. Uh, impression of the whole experience and it really made uh, you, you feel humble a little bit it's like uh, it's a, it's a strange yeah very strange experience but very i'm really really happy that people found it uh, a nice story yeah. and i'm really happy that, that that anybody wants to if i can f share it with anybody I'm, especially my my country it was only the yeah. the second <laughs> second grand slam ever to since denmark some, so. since somebody but you know, but uh, yeah, second <laughs> in your family though yeah, yeah, yeah. second in my family that's yeah. right yeah that maybe that's uh that's oh, the key. Great, it was a great story. I mean, there was. I just remember writing about it at the time and just being like, "There's just so many, you know, great kind of angles to this." And no, but the story is know. actually it's crazy. Yeah. There's so many, so many things that happened that just it will take me several hours <laughs> to talk, go through. I mean. I wasn't even pay, playing in my own shoes. I got a pair of shoes from Justin Tim, uh, Justin Timberlake. <laughs> Justin like, Gimmelstop. That would be a story. <laughs> from Justin Gimmelstop and and just how we got together, Johnny, yeah. and how the whole year developed and. I mean, it's 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 really it really is a crazy story, and how lucky we were during the matches, mm -hmm. what kind of points changed the matches, and it was mm -hmm. just ridiculous. Really, it was at, 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 in the final. I, w I was pretty calm at the end because it felt like I mean I was injured, mm -hmm. and that made us play better. I mean, right. what what kind of stuff is that? And so by the end, I just I felt this is this is just gonna happen. It's somehow <laughs> meant to be because. If I need a shank volley winner, I'll get a shank volley winner. It's just <laughs> stupid stuff, you know. It's it defies logic. Yeah, so yeah. by the end, I just went with it and go, all right, fine. That must, that had to have taken a lot of the pressure off then. I mean, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, in a lot of ways. Yeah, well, well, I remember a specific point. We we held serve to four one in the fifth set. Mm -hmm. after in the final. We, in the final, after we uh, we 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 blew a five two lead in the mm -hmm. fourth set breaker, but when we won the game to four one, Tikal hit a return and I absolutely shanked a volley and it became the best drop shot. <laughs> And I just think, okay, I mean, it's just gonna happen. Yeah. No matter how much I try to to mess it up, it's not gonna happen. So I just relaxed, thought, hey, just let it happen. And, That's a and nice said, way to do it. Said, when yeah. I, I talked, I talked to Caroline about you once, and she said you were one of the, you know, you're you're sort of a party guy in general on the tour as much as that's. Loud. Is that still fair? You think? Well, what does she mean about that? I wasn't <laughs> in the interview. You can't look at me. No, no, yeah, I enjoy a good party. Of course, who doesn't? Yeah. Well, you gotta pick your pick your battles as of well, course. don't you? But uh, yeah, of course. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's just because it's a big contrast to her very serious life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's think about it. Right. Well done. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, I don't know. What are their favorite cities then to go to? I absolutely love New York. Yeah. Obviously, I love Italy. Yeah, I really like playing all Italy. over Italy or just like specific cities. Northern parts are better. Yeah, love Rome. I haven't played yeah. Rome. I, I hope I'm gonna get the chance to play it this Absolutely. year for the first time. Uh, I love playing in Italy as well because they have late starts. Mm -hmm. I'm a terrible morning person, so late starts and late restaurants yeah, yeah. and bars yeah, exactly. too. That's I don't mind going to Italy no, for the exact same reason. I can like cover the event and then I'll be like, well, exactly. four more it's hours brilliant. I can go do something. Uh, obviously, yeah, I mean New York is a fantastic yeah. place. And in general, I really like playing in the states. Mm -hmm. It's it's perfect for for tennis. I think that every side, be it the future challenger or a tour event, has got loads of courts and the clubs are always fine and. Uh, you, well, it's a big country, so you always have a car, so you have yeah. the flexibility and 
uh, weather's good. Mm -hmm. I really enjoy it. I always try to come back and play as much, even though I actually play terrible tennis here. I, just <laughs> I, really, I really like it here. Yeah. So, so how, how do you how do you build your schedule then around travel? Because you play you're playing a lot of different layers of stuff right yeah, now. Yeah, it's the singles and doubles balance. How are you working that? Yeah, now? it's a little bit difficult now. I'm I'm trying to to base my my schedule around singles, but. Uh, it goes without saying that I want to have the experience in my life of playing Indian Wells and sure. Miami. Yeah. If that's going to cost something on my ranking, then so be it. I mean, it's it's just two big tournaments that I can't make. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you can't put a price on the experience of that. And uh, other than that, I'm I'm trying to use it as as good training. I mean, you have the best players in the world here, so hopefully I'm going to get a chance to hit with some of them, and that that's the point as well. With uh, I'm trying to play some of the. Obviously, I will try and play the Grand Slams every time if I can in doubles. And then maybe try and play some of the clay court uh, um, master series, mm -hmm. but uh, primarily I'm I'm trying to to base it around singles, and I, I like to play on hard courts. So I try to look for a good hard court swing, but it's it's difficult this year because yeah, I want to play singles, but I want to play yeah. the big tournaments right. and doubles, but I don't want to yeah. play too much double and. And Wimbledon just sort of totally changed your, your plan. Kind of hijacked your career. Like, yeah, it did a little bit. Kind of way. I mean, it did. Yeah. Uh, I got injured in the final of Wimbledon. I was actually struggling with it on, on, until December. Oh, wow. But oh, I wow. kept playing with it because there were so many things that I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. uh, the World Tour Finals you were at. Yeah. There you go. And, yeah. uh, what was that like being in like that, that very, very select group? Yeah. Treated like kings, right? That's all the players I felt so out of place. <laughs> really? Yeah, I felt just ridiculous there. It was just yeah. weird. That's probably the most exclusive tennis tournament there is in yeah. the world. I mean, if, if the Grand Slams, if you're top 300, you can play qualities and you might qualify. Right. Yeah. But uh, the World Tour Finals, top eight, singles and doubles. So, and I think the way they've built up the, the Masters the last few years at the O2 Arena is really, really cool. Mm -hmm. And especially for doubles, it gives doubles a bit more attention and it's probably the, the nicest event for the doubles mm -hmm. players. And uh, for us, it was amazing. And also I played with a Brit, yeah. which, <laughs> so, which helped a little bit. And that tournament was just, Extraordinary! I was really, really happy and uh, and thrilled that I had the chance to play that. And, and like I said before, when I play these events, I just try not to let anything get in the way of the right. experience. And uh, on top of that, we managed to get a few wins and play yeah. semifinals. So it was just yeah, that was that was a bit of, uh, surreal, really, because it felt stupid that, <laughs> like, that, that I was somehow there. You, yeah, yeah, like some. I, don't, I still don't feel that I belong at these events. Mm. Because throughout my life, if I've been at these events, okay, I've never been here, but main draw Grand Slam is because I lost qualities and stuck around as a tourist. Right. So sometimes you go, dude, I've got to play tomorrow. I've got to remember if I'm on the schedule because <laughs> I feel like I'm just here to practice. And yeah. it's, uh, it feels strange. It really yeah. does. Do you think, it, you think it'll normalize like over time or is it now? I don't know. Yeah, maybe. To say. But uh, maybe not because after Wimbledon, when I... When I <laughs> like it probably will happen uh, if I, when I when I don't successfully right, defend, defend, your defend <laughs> my two thousand points. Are you, are you and Freddie? Are you, are you and Johnny playing together? Uh, I don't think so. Know? It looks no. like he's got a regular partner now. Yeah. Okay, that's the way it goes. Uh, he's yeah. got a he's got his career. He's yeah, fifteen in the world. He needs a regular partner, obviously. And he and wants I, to commit to it in a, in a different way. That and I don't want to yeah. commit to a full schedule. No. And uh, it looks like uh, no. Yeah. But yeah. the way I see it as well. Sometimes it's uh, it's like a movie. You made a make a good movie, mm -hmm. and you gotta be happy with that movie. Yeah. And you don't just go go Hollywood on it and try to cash in on on, on number two unless there's a really good script. You know, how, how many terrible sequels have we seen? And just just stick with a good right. a good one unless unless you got 
the bloody the Godfather, Godfather, Godfather. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. No, no Temple of Doom, but only a exactly, Godfather Part Two. Exactly. Just, you know, you've got a great movie, mm -hmm. you got the usual suspect, stick yep. with that, you know. Yeah. That's fine. And have the confidence to say that. Absolutely. You know, not grasping and the... It's, and at the end of the day, it's never going to change anything in the experience we had. Right. Uh, it's, it was still a great experience, and I'm going to have that for the rest of my life, and, uh, and hopefully... Hopefully I'll get a chance to play with Johnny again, but we'll have that together yeah. and it's not gonna, not gonna change. Not gonna change. Yeah, so so sure. la last question, uh, who are some of the guys who you think might be like most like sort of fun guys in the, in the locker room that we might not know about? Challenge, all the way down to Challenger Tours, whoever you think are like the people, you know, in your opinion, because you're a pretty cool guy. So. <laughs> the, the, other, the other cool guys. The cool guys stand for approval. Well, there are a lot of a lot of characters. I mean, it's easy to say uh, Terznov. Obviously, he's a. Must uh, be nice to see him doing well again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He's great for the sport. Yeah. He's uh, he's definitely out there. But I like it. I like a lot of these crazy guys. I mean, uh, they enrich in my life. Mm -hmm. that's, that's for sure. But crazy guys, I don't know. In the locker room, I don't know. Like your go-to guys to go grab like dinner with, or, dinner or everybody's with lost, or and you're gonna go hit the hotel bar. You know that sort of that sort of crew. Yeah, there, there's so many players. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I really like that's good. many. You know, this week I'm with Grigor. I mm. think he's he's great. He's funny. He's a wacko guy as well. <laughs> he's uh, older really than his years, like in terms, in, in sometimes. No, yeah, uh, no, no. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, you practice with him, and he hits two normal shots, and then he's gotta do one backflip somersault <laughs> behind the leg shots, and uh, just can't. He's always good for a good comment. I like I like the good banter. Uh, yeah, the doubles players have good banter actually. And they're social people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're used to getting by by themselves, and they, I think they also know that there's always a chance that you might be teaming up somewhere down right, the line. Right, just so. from a kind of a business networking yeah, perspective. Yeah, absolutely. You know? yeah, yeah, sure. There's so many good guys out there. It's, uh, I don't want to start naming anybody because I will, <laughs> no I will forget some, but uh, I actually can't name any like standout jokers just just like really? that. But they're, uh, I don't know, you put me on the spot here. <laughs> <laughs> but there's definitely, we, we have some great ones. I mean, uh, we have so many great uh, great players, uh, not, not only on the, the, mm -hmm. the World Tour, we have it on the Challenger Tour as well, and you probably know some of them. I yeah. mean, uh, Dustin Brown's a character. Right. You yeah. have uh, the world's fastest server and Sam Groth as well. And <laughs> all these guys, they play the the, the smaller rank tournaments as well. And and you never know when, when they pull a pull right. a Freddie or Johnny. Right. Yeah. Exactly. 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 Well, well, thank you very much for joining. Us, no, Freddie. thanks we for hope, having me. Yeah. We hope that if you do get a sequel, it's an awesome one. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> good luck here. Thank you very much. Right. Thanks. Sweet.